This is Tyler Moore from themoretruth.com. Thank you for listening to this testimony. I hope and pray that it will be a blessing for you in your day. I hope your heart draws closer to Jesus Christ after listening to a member of the body of Christ share their story. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I pray that your heart will soften to want to have a relationship with him. If you do have a relationship with him, I pray that your heart will be strengthened by hearing the testimony of another brother or sister in Christ. I pray that you may relate with their journey. May God bless you. Please enjoy. Today at The More Truth, I'm interviewing Daryl Rundis, uh, a good friend and my (laughs) father-in-law. How are you doing today? Oh, if I was any better, I'd be in heaven. (laughs) So we're here for your testimony. Uh, We're here to talk about everything that Christ has done in your life. So you told me earlier before this interview, you had numerous job titles you wanted to give. What was one of them? Well, I mean, I'm a man who wears many hats, right? So as a father of five, you could say my job title is a father or as a husband or, you know, a CEO or the founder and former CEO of the world's largest circulation sales and marketing firm, you know? So over the years, I've taken on several titles. I have a home-based business now, so you could say I'm the president of Butterflyers or what have you. But when people commonly ask me that, let's say I'm on an airplane and talking to another guy and, you know, inevitably they always ask, you know, what do you do for a living? Or I may ask them and then they ask me. I always like to say, and I hope more Christians would kind of take this mindset as well. um, I usually say I'm a nobody who tells everybody about somebody (laughs) who can save anybody. And in short, I guess if you had to sum that up, I'd say I'm an ambassador for Christ. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I just like more Christians to, to meditate on that for a minute and think about it like this. If, uh, if the president of the United States, and all of a sudden you got some uh, surprise, unexpected phone call and they called you up and said, Hey Tyler, we want you to become an ambassador of the United States. I mean, you'd be humbled. You'd be honored. You'd be like, wow, even if it's Joe Biden and you don't like him, you think mm-hmm. he's a horrible president or it's president Trump and you hate him and you think he's a tor- horrible president or whatever doesn't matter, love them, like them, hate them, you would still feel honored that you would be called to be an ambassador for your country. Well, in the same way, when you become a Christian, you become an ambassador of Christ. And so to me, like I said, I'm a nobody telling everybody about somebody who can save anybody, AKA an ambassador for Christ. You know, we were actually singing that song on the way up here to visiting you. Uh, Just... That the guy be somebody, or that tell about somebody who saved my soul, because it's about Christ. It's about Christ entering our lives. Uh, so, in short, I guess my most cherished title is ambassador. That's my most valued title. That's the most prestigious title I could think I could ever have bestowed upon me is to have the King of the Universe call me up and say, "Hey, I want you to be my ambassador to the peoples of the world." Because you evangelized. Like for a good, what, 10, five years? Oh, yeah. Well, I still do. Well, I mean, right. You're still but I mean, formally them. training other yes. people and teaching them to do it. Yeah, we we used to train up and equip Christians to share their faith pretty much anywhere, anyplace, anytime, whether it's passing out tracks or talking to people on the streets or college campuses, you name it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, open-air preaching, pretty much uh, everything you ever see on Way of the Master with Kirk Cameron, Ray Comfort, those guys. And so our ministry partner with their ministry and... I was known as the general, you know, that was my title. That was what they gave me then was because I would command the troops to go out on the streets and, you know, share the faith and equip them and teach them and 
show them all the things that they share on their show. What would your current hobby be right now? Besides being an ambassador, Christ. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I would say just trying to, I wouldn't even call it a hobby really. I don't really have any hobbies as, as the world would know the word hobby is something you just model airplanes or, you know, right. kind of thing. It's, it's, for me, it's more of an everyday trying to be the best at whatever it is I'm doing, whether it's being a husband, whether it's being a mm-hmm. father, whether it's being a believer or a follower of Jesus, you know what, I'm just, every day I'm kind of start my day looking within. And, Introspective. And yeah, mm-hmm. and, and then I try to pray, read the word every day, you know, I try to wash my mind in the word of God every day. And, um, but through that, I, I just, my hobby is more of a, a self-improvement of my walk with the Lord. You know, what can I do? a little bit today when when i first met my wife you know she said something to me that has profoundly impacted our relationship and my relationship with jesus as well and that is more today than yesterday but less than tomorrow and you know that really resonated with me and it was so profound at the time i didn't under really even understand it couldn't fully even comprehend it but now i get it now i understand it's like my relationship my love for the lord should be a little more today mm-hmm. than yesterday but not as much as it will be tomorrow you know my ability to love others you know is more today than yesterday but not as much as it will be tomorrow or to love her you know more today than yesterday that less than it will tomorrow so it's it's been a pervasive and very profound and powerful uh impactful statement or i would even go as far as to say a a life philosophy for us, you know, now we kind of go about that with our kids, with uh, our, each other, with our relationship with Jesus. It's just every day we want to try to improve a little bit more today than we did yesterday. And we want to be a little closer to God than we will be tomorrow. And like, just to touch on that, like, because it's not about coming to Christ and being perfect right away. It's about allowing him to change you. It's that process. Mm-hmm. And I think motive comes into play there, right? Mm-hmm. I think... If you love God and you love Jesus and you love his word, you can't help. God loves you enough to not leave you alone. He's not going to let you settle for mediocrity. You know, he has called you, the Bible says, and appointed you in Christ for good works. And he's going to, he's going to polish off those rough edges. He's going (laughs) to sometimes subject you to uncomfortable situations because that's how you'll learn to get comfortable. That's why everybody knows you don't pray for patience because he doesn't just snap his fingers and wow, now you're a patient person. (laughs) He's going to put you in every circumstance and situation, every traffic jam, every long line, everything that's going to test those patients and cause you to learn to become more patient. You mean he's not a genie? No, he's not a genie in the bottle. Definitely not, a, not the kind of rub and you get three wishes and you know anything like that. No, he's a good father. You know, and in fact, I think that leads us to the to the next question. Well, I, eventually, you're right. I'm jumping ahead. So, uh, your ambassador, you talk about being very introspective throughout your day each day. Uh, is there anything interesting you'd like to share about your life or your life story? Yeah, I know you touched you, on being a I think CEO or entrepreneur. One of the most unique things about me is I'm the oldest living survivor in the world with something called Hirschsprung disease. And what is that? Hirschsprung disease is when you're born with partial intestines, and the the large intestine has no nerve endings. Most people don't realize that your intestines are comprised with lots of nerves that help move the food through your system and and ultimately excrete it. But when you have Hirschsprungs, those nerve endings are dead. They're not there. 
and so you can't pass food. Huh. And so what happened was back when I was born in the 60s, they didn't have ultrasound and, you know, some of the technologies that are available today. So, you know, they slap you on the butt if you screamed and cried and, you know, whatever, you were good to go. And a day later, you're home with mom. And unfortunately, a couple, three days later, I started to get really bloated mm. and my mom knew something was wrong. And so she took me back to the hospital and they did, you know, some x-rays or whatever they did back then and realized that, you know, I hadn't had any bowel movements and then I was just bloating and all that milk was just souring in my stomach. In fact, my mom said when they rushed me in to the hospital and they opened me up, um, that the smell of sour milk just filled the whole room, just permeated the room. But every kid that had ever been born with this before me had long since died. Mm -hmm. And, uh, in fact, they told my mom if I even lived past the age of 10 after I think it was a hundred different surgeries for the first two wow. years of my life, I was in the hospital, was at home. I was in the hospital. Do you remember a lot of that? I was two. No, I don't remember any of it actually. Mm -hmm. And so um, what's interesting though is that within those surgeries, within all that time, you know, they just kept trying to, I guess doctors try to prepare as best they can, parents especially of children that they may lose that child. And, mm -hmm. and so they want them to be mentally and emotionally ready for that should it come. And that had been their experience. Once again, every child up to that point had, had long since passed away. Um, some survived, but like they told her, if I even lived to the age of 10, I'd be retarded or a vegetable. I'd probably never eat solid food, maybe be tube fed my whole life. Yeah, I'd never play sports, never have kids. You know those kind of things. Did she have siblings, or did you have siblings with this too, or was uh, it just you? No. Once again, it was that she had no idea until she took me in mm. two days after she had taken me home. Two days after I was born. So from the time I was two days old till the time I was two <laughs> years old, I was in the hospital oh and gosh. had about a hundred different surgeries. And anybody that understands Hirschsprung disease, and God very graciously, in fact, twice in my life, it's a very rare thing. It's like one in a million kids wow. are born with this, and so. Um, I've actually met two other people, both of which were the way my, they told my mom I would have been. Mm -hmm. So one had been tube fed his whole life. He couldn't verbalize, couldn't talk, had the most beautiful, precious blue eyes. He could just look through your soul with his blue eyes like he wanted mm -hmm. to talk to me. And we sat next to him on an airplane and uh, cared for him for about three hours. Just uh, This was before I was even a Christian. And then one time... When I was about 18, I was knocking on doors, traveling around America, and met a lady who had a child who still had a colostomy, and uh, had never they never hooked him up completely, and so, you know, I got to talk to him and meet him and stuff. So I realized early on how fortunate I was, and so um, while Tammy, my wife, thinks they got the retarded part right, the rest of it, you know, I've lived a so-called normal life. You know, I eat regular food, I've played sports, I've had kids, and, you know, I'm, like I said, maybe mildly retarded, I don't know, but... I, I, um, I wouldn't say that. No, no, no. I'm just kidding. And I'm not making fun of people that are mentally challenged or, or no. whatever. I'm just saying, by the grace of God, there go I. You know, that very likely could. So, my mom used to say, God must have saved you for a very special reason. And then, of course, when I act up and misbehave, she'd say, well, sometimes I think it might have been the other guy that saved you, but... Uh, <laughs> In all seriousness, I think that's yeah, probably the most unique, you know, thing about me is I'm I'm the oldest person in the world that was ever born with Hirschsprung disease. Wow, that's pretty neat though. I mean, I'm grateful that um, you know we're able to hear your voice today. Here, yeah. this next part, uh, I feel that you're ready to talk about who is Jesus Christ to you. 
You know, of course, I, it's, it's funny when I saw that question that you had given me because I'm sure the standard answer is, you know, Lord and Savior. You know, that's what everybody would want to say. And I asked that question uh, with our ministry prayer stop. Before we pray with someone, we say, you know, we pray in Jesus' name. Do you know why? Who is Jesus to you? Because it's a, it's a checkpoint in that road of conversation to see if they know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And of course, he's my Lord and Savior, but he's so much more than that. You know, he's my teacher. He's my instructor. He's uh, my friend. You know, he's my convictor. You know, he, he uh, he's just everything. You know, I don't know what my life would be like without him. Uh, when I think back to the way my life was before him, wow, what a difference, you know? And I, I just wouldn't know what I'd be lost is a good way of putting it, just like I used to be without him because he's, I lean on him, I depend on him, I count on him, I trust him, I know him, he knows me. And once again, he's, he's, he's everything. He's more than just my Lord or Savior because the thing is, yes, he saved me from certain death and hell and judgment and sin and so much more. And he is my Lord because I call him Lord and I try to obey and do as he commands. But that can denote to the world, like, oh, I'm his slave, or, you know, I'm, I'm just a helpless, hapless Christian that I'm an automaton robot that doesn't have a mind of my own, or, you know, whatever. But it's not like that at all. It's like having a good, kind, loving father who will discipline you if you need that discipline. But he does it because he loves you. So, you know, he's like my father. He's, he's the father I never had. You know, the father that I grew up without. So he's, uh, he's everything. You know, I, I do these testimonies via audio because sometimes I have to check like to see if the, everything's working in the background, but to really convey just the love that is permeating from you, I, I can't help but tear up myself just because of how Christ does change your life and what he does in you and how the love is so abundant that he is that everything to you. He just engulfs you in a wave, like a, for me, like a tsunami, it came upon me. And I see that with you. This is abundant love that you feel and that you're expressing to. Yeah, I mean, he'll, uh, he'll make a rich man give all his money away, you know. Yeah. He'll take your heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh, a heart that loves and learns to trust and learns to forgive again. And so, it's so much more. So, how were you before you knew Christ? I was a modern-day Saul. Okay. I was a persecutor of Christians. I hated Christians. Did you murder Christians? I, uh, well, the thing is, for me, I kind of had bad experiences with okay. Christians. You know, my dad left my mom for another woman, and he was a pastor. And so that was my okay. first example. And then he didn't show up. He didn't come around, didn't pay child support, didn't spend time, show much interest. You know, so, and I was the youngest of four. So then I saw my mom in the 70s when... We were in a very high inflationary, you know, type of environment. The economy is doing horribly, kind of like we we are here today in the 2020s. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, so I saw her work three jobs and many a night we, you know, have popcorn for dinner. Or, or you know, my oldest brother and sister would work at fast food restaurants and bring leftovers home and, you know, things like that. So I kind of grew up, you know, thinking, wow, if that's a Christian, that's the last thing I want to be. Mm -hmm. And, uh... Then in my teen years, I quit high school and I joined a traveling sales crew. 
And when you travel from city to city, you're, of course, staying in hotels. And the one book that's in every hotel, <laughs> thank God for those Gideons, you know, is, is the Bible. And so I would read the Bible. Of course, it made no sense to me. I had no clue, no respect, no trust in anything. In fact, most of it was just complete nonsense. And, 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 and I was just oblivious to any of its meaning or it had no understanding of really what even I was reading. It was just all there was to read. And back then you didn't have a thousand different channels to, you know, change TV channels or whatever. So you got really nothing else to do. And uh, so I knew the word better than most Christians. And so I grew up, even with the oldest brother who had gotten saved when he was 18, uh, trying to share the gospel and they trying to, you know, plant seeds, whatever. And I'd smack them. And we're back. Uh, had a technical issue where my foot unplugged the microphone. And uh, Daryl, you were speaking about your brother evangelizing to right. you. Yeah, so more, and then lots of other people as well, you know. So I had my brother and other people, whenever they'd try to share their faith with me. Once again, that's why I say it was kind of a modern day Saul in that I was a crucifier of Christians, not physically. I wouldn't hunt them down and try to right. kill them like he did, but I'd crush their spirit. I'd crush their you know, faith, basically. Right. I, would, I knew the Bible, having read it four, five, six, ten times over before I was a believer, mm. um, I knew it, and I would ask them contradictory questions. You know, what the world would say is a contradiction within the Bible. How could it be this? And then, the, you know, how could a loving God let someone go to hell? You know, I just knew a lot of those things, like uh, Pontius Pilate, you know, um, when he put, brings a Barabbas in front of the crowd and Jesus, he says, we have two prisoners. Which one do you want me to release? And yet... You know, I would ask him, so if, if that was the case, there weren't two prisoners, why is Jesus supposedly in this prison with all these other prisoners? How come it doesn't mention them? And, you know, it was just stupidity kind mm -hmm. of questions. But, you know, it was my, you know, limited understanding of really what scripture is and what it means and what it says and so on. But most Christians don't have an answer to defend their faith. They don't have, you know, the facts to defend their faith. And so I had a fun time torturing them, mm -hmm. you know, literally tormenting Tearing them with apart. words and yeah. questions and contradictions and, you know, just different things. And so before Christ, I, I was your worst nightmare. I was a liar, a cheater, a thief, and a money-motivated multimillionaire, you know, that uh, could go anywhere, do anything, had everything. Last thing I was looking for was Jesus, you know. So mm -hmm. uh, believe me, I didn't find Jesus. He found me. It was, it was not something I was looking forward to or wanted any part of. I'd been to many Christian events by invitation with friends or family members that I loved. And I liked hanging out with them. So, you know, I'd appease them and go and whatever. But no no impact. Like I remember one time going to a Promise Keepers event. And my, I asked my brother one of those questions. How do you know Jesus is the Son of God? He's like, well, because he said so. He said, I'm the way and I'm the truth and I'm the life. Oh, so if George Bush says I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and I'm the only way to heaven, you're going to believe that too? You know, and he had no answer. He had no response for that. All he could do was say, well, Jesus said, or Jesus said that. You know, he didn't have any of the evidence that I later discovered that proved that Jesus was the Son of God. He didn't just claim he was the son of God, he proved, you know, he proved it by performing many miracles like raising the dead and the lame and the sick and the blind and, you know, other things like that, fulfilling hundreds of prophecies that were written That's hundreds of years before it, yeah. him and so on. But none of these Christians seemed to have the, 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 a way to defend their faith. They didn't have the facts to stand up for their faith. They didn't understand that, you know, you could scrutinize the Bible very tightly 
you know, but it's like an anvil with a hammer and every hammer just gets worn down to a nub when you try to hammer away at scripture. When you honestly, objectively look at it and investigate the matter, it, it, you, it leaves you no doubt. Mm. People talk about how it's faith that leads you to God. And that's true. We're saved by grace through faith. But it takes very little, little faith. I mean, a very limited little bit of faith, just a small little bit of faith. The rest, God has very graciously proven to us through his word and through world history and through the acts of his own disciples, his son, and so much more that leaves no room for doubt. I mean, really, if you honestly, objectively investigate Christianity in the Bible in an honest, objective way, you would have to have more faith to be an atheist or a non-believer than to be a Christian. You, right. you would actually have to deny a lot of facts and a lot of historical evidence in order to believe he wasn't who he said he was. You would have to look the other way. Yeah, you have to, just like modern technology today, we have unraveled the mysteries of DNA. And yet people would still say there is no God. But how does all that information, how does trillions and trillions of lines of code get into a computer without a programmer? I mean, mm -hmm. you ju it just doesn't happen. Bill Gates himself said that the DNA information within a DNA is so powerful, so huge, so infinite that no computer software programmer in the world could even do one-tenth of one percent of what is in the DNA strand. I mean, they're still just trying to unravel it and map it all. They have been much less created. You know, they mm -hmm. don't know how to do it. All they can do is replicate it. I mean, I could copy a tape, but can I make the tape? Do I know how to make that tape or, or CD or DVD? No, but I might be able to copy it. So in the same way, God has proven through all of creation and through his word and through historical events and so much more. Um, in fact, when we get to my testimony, I'll share one of those evidences with you that God used in a mighty way to finally convict me, to finally push me over the edge intellectually that... He, Jesus is the son of God and he did rise from the dead. So what was it? Because here we are in your testimony. <laughs> well, like I said, I, I was a curse, you know, I was a, a, a successful businessman. And so what year is this? Do you know? Uh, 2001. 2001. Is that right after 9-11? So 2002. Right A lot less gray hair. Yes. <laughs> Silver hair, rather. <laughs> so, I mean, once again, the last thing I was looking for was Jesus. I, I didn't want anything to do with Christians or Christianity in general. I would have told you the Bible was a big, thick, dusty book filled with rules to make your life miserable. That Jesus, if he really even did exist, was at best some great teacher or, mm -hmm. you know, he was like Gandhi or Mohammed or Buddha or, you know, whatever. I didn't really discern him any different than any other religious figure in, in history. So I uh, went to lunch one day with a longtime friend and attorney. And believe it or not, there are a few lawyers out there that are Christians and that are honest and that actually do a, a really good job. And he happens to be one of them. And we go to lunch and we get, I don't know if he purposely brought it up. I don't remember, but we started talking about, does God exist? And, you know, he gave me a few good examples, ones I've heard many times before, and I'm shooting them down left and right as I've done with many other Christians before. And I get home and I tell my wife, Tammy, you won't believe what happened at lunch today. You know, our lawyer, longtime friend who I've counted on and trusted all this time, started preaching to me about Jesus and God and the Bible. I mean, how dare he invite me to lunch and waste my time 
just to tell me about Jesus. I mean, I thought he really cared about me, man. <laughs> I thought, you know, and I just go on and on. I just, I'm, I'm pissed. I was mad, you know, and I, I felt betrayed. Like he, he would do such a thing. He tricked me into going to lunch with him and pick my favorite restaurant. And, and you know, I thought he just wanted to hang out and be buds and, you know, whatever. But in the process of telling her what happened that day, I mentioned the church that he said I ought to go check out. And the next Sunday comes around and my wife's all dressed up. The kids are dressed up. And I'm like, honey, where are you going? She's like, I'm going to that church. I said, what? You're going to that church? Now, my wife had never been to church a day in her life. The only church she'd ever done a foot into was the day her mom died. That was it. That's the only time she'd ever been to church. Not to mention the fact that she gets lost going to the grocery store. I mean, she is so directionally challenged. The best gift I probably had ever given her was before GPS came out in every car. I gave her one of those Garmin plug-in <laughs> right, GPSs yeah. <laughs> and it helped her find her way around. But she makes her way to this church, takes the kids, comes back, starts telling me about, you know, because I asked, well, what did he talk about today? You know, what did he, what did he, what did he preach on? What did he teach on? Because I'm thinking I'm, my wife's about to get indoctrinated into some cult or You're going to lose your you know? wife today. Right. And I'm like, I love her. She's the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. So she says, well, he had these two tanks on stage and <laughs> he came out of one of the tanks and he's talking about this armor of God thing and how we're in this spiritual battle. And I'm like, what in the heck has my wife got herself caught up into? So next week, same thing. She gets dressed. She goes to the church. Every week she keeps coming back and every week I keep saying, you know, what do you talk about this week? What do you talk about this week? Finally, after about the third, fourth week, she got smart and she knows me better than I probably know myself. And she said, if you want to know, you got to go. And little did I know <laughs> how much that was going to end up changing my heart and my life and the lives of so many other people around me. But, uh, you know, being a salesman, I used every bit of the powers of persuasion that I could think of to get that information from her, and she wasn't budget. She was not going to tell me. If there's any more one you know, stubborn person on this planet than me, it's my wife. When she makes her mind up to be something or do something or say she's going to do it, that doesn't matter. If it's pain, come hell or high water, whatever it is, she's going to stick to it. She's that determined, and, 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 and you call it stubborn, I call it determination, but she was not budget. And to give a minor description of Tammy... Tammy is probably like up to Daryl's like kneecap and height. She's a small <laughs> woman, uh, and like compared to Daryl, she's very petite. I mean, Daryl, you know, uh, he's so charismatic, intelligent, and whatnot. Imagine that with someone who's your opponent, then who's against everything you're believing, and then also towering over you because you have a large physique too. You can't be well, intimidated. Well, no, right? in fact, I have to what I call minimize myself right. when I'm in a room with people because even when I try not to be intimidating, it's intimidating for people because whether it's success, whether it's right. business, whether it's my size, my voice is a booming voice, you know, so uh, a radio voice, you know. <laughs> well, you're naturally and, commanding. Right. And, and so God used this, you know, quote unquote, weak woman A, a, a proper wife. She's right. very sweet, yeah. you know, just quiet, sweet, gentle spirit of a woman, right? I've never heard her say harsh words about anybody, never very rarely ever raise her voice about anything. Usually it's when she's in defense of her kids or mm -hmm. something like that, and then somebody angers her or makes her mad because she's defending them or whatever. But short of that, she's kind and gentle and loving, and, and God used her long before I was saved to show me what love really was. And uh, 
Anyway, so I loved her and I, and I cared about her. And I wanted to know, though, what she, you know, she's the preacher preached on that Sunday. So I made a deal. Easter was coming in a couple weeks. And I said, look, I'll go to church with you on Easter Sunday if you tell me what he talked about. So she tells me what he said. It was nothing big. I felt I got ripped off. Like I, I just made the worst deal of my life. So Easter rolls around. I try to play sick. I say, oh, honey, I think I got a fever. I don't feel good. <laughs> you know, trying to sneeze. And, and she, like a good mom, knowing all her kids' tricks, she was having none of it. And she's like, no, you made a promise. You get up, you get dressed, and you're going to church with me. And what's good, I love my wife. She's the greatest thing next to finding Jesus or Jesus finding me that's ever happened to me. And so I was like, okay, you know, and I got up mm. and I got dressed and we went to church. And I kid you not, Tyler, I took a pad of paper and a pen ready to take notes so that when we got out of church, mm -hmm. I could tell her how Christianity was a sham and a fraud. It was for weak people to get through life, that it's just a crutch and all they want is your money from you, right? Mm -hmm. Now keep in mind, I'm a rich, successful entrepreneur, you know, never worked with a salary in my whole life. I've always been on straight commission. So, I mean, I, I knew what, it, what hard work was and what it took to make, you know, to make a living and to make a, a good life for yourself. And so, I, I, you know, I didn't trust the church. I didn't trust pastors, especially, or other Christians. You know, once again, they're just liars and hypocrites to me. Mm -hmm. And so I go to take notes. Well, before the preacher gets on the stage, before he says even word one, they had like a movie screen size theater picture screen, and they just did a portrayal of Christ crucified on the cross. Mm -hmm. Getting get nailed to the cross. And the Holy Spirit came on me in a powerful and amazing way like I've never felt before in my life. And I just started weeping and crying. And I don't know how, I don't know why, but I just knew it was my son that pinned him to that mm. cross, that he was doing that for me. And all I could say, my sinner's prayer, if you will, was, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, I was so wrong. I'm so sorry. We get home and is still trying to wrap my mind around how the Holy Spirit had just supernaturally showed up like a modern day Saul to Paul and just radically changed my heart on the spot. I mean, I'm, I'm feeling this in my heart, but I don't understand it. I can't comprehend it. And so as a thinker, as an intellectual person, I'm trying to wrap my mind around what I'm feeling in my heart. Mm -hmm. And like a pesky fly, I'm trying to shoot away. I'm trying to like, I don't, I, this is foreign to me. I don't, I don't like it. I, I mean, I like it, but I don't like it. I'm just kind of confused. And so for the next, say, 60 to 90 days, I did nothing for 18 hours a day, but trying to debunk Christianity. I took an honest, hard, objective view, but I was doing everything I could to prove that Jesus was not the Son of God. The Bible was not true. It could not be trusted. And the more I dived into it, the more I scrutinized it, the more convicted I became. And eventually, my head caught up with my heart, and I completely surrendered. Now, I probably got saved that day on Easter. But my head hadn't caught up with my heart yet. And finally, when it did, I was all in. I was sold out. Nothing, nothing, no one could change that. No one could change my mind. And one of the things among many, many, many others, we're, we're kind of limited on time, but I, uh, I'll i share just this one thing. Now, keep in mind, at that time, I had about 250 people working under me, mm -hmm. and all of which I had personally recruited, trained, hired, and taught 
the ropes to our business. It's a very unique, you know, business. So it's not something you could just hire anybody for. You really had to train them up and teach them the way to go. And so I got to thinking about the behavior of the disciples. How when Jesus got taken by the the Romans to be brought in front of Herod and, and Pontius Pilate and thrown in prison and and beaten and all that, they ran and they hid in the upper room and they were cowardly in their response. In fact, Peter denied them three times. I don't even know this man. And he was one of the guys that was closest to him and had seen firsthand these miracles, the things that Jesus had done. And then a few days later, three days to be exact, when Jesus had risen from the dead and they had this encounter with Christ, all of a sudden they turn from coward to courageous. Mm. They go out into all the world. And what I didn't realize before was what was their motive? See, I understand people. I know people. That's the thing that God helped me be was a people person. I just know people. I love people. I study people. I interact with people. You know, just I'm a people person. That's just who I am. And so I understand people's motives. Mm-hmm. And I looked at the motive because men lie all the time. I was like, well, yeah. if they were lying, now keep in mind, you don't have to know these guys went out and told the story that Jesus performed all these miracles and died on the cross and rose from the dead. You don't even have to read the Bible to know that because we still hear the story today. Mm-hmm. Right? We still been passed on, call it a telephone game or whatever you want, but through word of mouth, it has gone for 2,000 years and it hasn't ceased, right? It's still going. So if you trace it back to the source, you know these guys, these 12 dudes, 11 if you take Judas out of the picture. Mm-hmm. Um, so you got 11 guys that went from being cowards to being courageous. They, We know 100% without any equivocation they told that story. Once again, you don't have to read the Bible to know they told this story. But then I say, okay, so it was either, since they're the originals of the story, they were either lying and making it up or it was the truth. That's mm-hmm. only two options you have. So if they're lying, what would the motive for telling those lies be? What did they get? They got money? No, they didn't get money. Uh, they got fame? No, they didn't get fame. Uh, they got accolades and awards and recognition from other people? No, they didn't get any mm-hmm. of that. In fact, quite the contrary. They all got hunted down like dogs. They all gave up their family, their friends, their possessions, everything they owned, everything they had, and went out into the known world at great persecution. In fact, every one of them died a brutal, cruel, horrific death, boiled in hot oil, had their heads chopped off, hung on the cross upside down, you name it. All but John, who even he was exiled for many years on an island by himself. And boiled alive yeah, and at then, some point. Right, yeah. and still survived it. <laughs> right, so then you think, yeah. okay, what would cause men to tell this lie? Was it money? No. Was it power? No. Was it fame? No. Was it accolades? No. Was it recognition? No. They didn't gain any of those things that men lie for, mm-hmm. right? But as a guy that had 200 and something people working for me, you know, 200 plus people, I thought, could I get my 10 best guys, my 10 most loyal, faithful guys that have been working for me for, say, 10 or plus years, okay, three times as long as the disciples were with Jesus, could you get them to, to die for a lie? Could you get them to go out, give up everything they own, leave their kids, leave their families, leave their cars, their houses, their money, everything, leave their job, and go out into the world and say, Daryl died, but he rose from the dead three days later, and he's the savior of the world. He's God's child. You know, he's God's son. He's the... Could you get them to do that? You've got all these powers of persuasion. You've got all this stuff. What if you told them you'd give them a million dollars each and they could live anywhere, any way they want for a year, and then they had to give it all up and go, would then they do it? No, they wouldn't do it. Nobody I could ever see now that worked for me or from in all the world's history 
except for those disciples, do you see where they willingly died for Allah? It doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. Even the Muslims that crashed planes into the Twin Towers in New York City, they died for Allah. They thought, you know, that's instant martyrdom. I'm going to go to heaven. I'm going to get 70 virgin brides. They died for a lie. But the difference was they believed it to be true. Right. See, these guys could not believe it was true because they were the inventors of the story. They were the originators of the story. So for me, from a firsthand perspective, I knew, I was like, that was the final nail in my coffin, so to speak. That was the final linchpin in understanding that Jesus really is the son of God. He really did die on the cross. He really did perform those miracles. And he did defeat Satan, sin, and death when he rose from the dead three days after they put him in the tomb. And so, you know, it's like I, I, I can't think of any other example, any other people in all of history that died willingly for a lie. And if it was a lie, they knew it was a lie. So there's no way. I mean, there's many other examples like the guards at the tomb. We know there were guards at the tomb because from the adversarial point of view, those that crucified or wanted Jesus crucified acknowledged there were guards at the mm -hmm. tomb by saying the guards fell asleep, right? So they don't deny that there were no guards at the, at the tomb or that the tomb was unguarded. They confirmed from the adversarial point of view, yes, there were guards at the tomb. They just say they fell asleep. And then, of course, once you start to study Roman history, like I did during those 90-day periods, you start to realize, you know what the punishment for a Roman guard is to fall asleep on the job? Right. It was death. So I'm thinking, wow, if I'm in battle and I'm, I got an enemy all around me and I know we got to stay awake or we could die. And let's say it's me and you together. And I say, Tyler, I know you're tired. We've marched all day from mm -hmm. Jerusalem here to Jerusalem. And man, I, I tell you what, you go to sleep. I'll take first watch. Then when you wake up, I'll go to sleep and you take second watch. And I fail you and I fall asleep and we're both asleep, right? And all of a sudden, five, six, ten disciples come and undo whatever seals they had on this big rock tomb. And they roll this big rock away and they drag a dead guy's body out of the tomb. <laughs> Are we going to wake up knowing if we're caught sleeping, we're going to die? Right. You probably have your back to sleep to the rock. If right. I was a Roman probably sleeping trying... right there with yeah. your back to the rock. Right. Yeah. So it's just, you, once again, you'd have to be intellectually dishonest with yourself just deny that there were guards at the tomb and that they fell asleep. I mean, if my life was on the line, I knew I was defending a lie and the only way to escape that was just to tell the truth. I'd probably tell the truth to keep my life. Right. Well, think about yeah. that. Yeah, like in, in battle, if you were captured behind enemy lines and they're torturing you and, you know, beating you half to death, wouldn't you eventually say something? Wouldn't you eventually at least lie to them or tell them what they want to hear or whatever you'd finally Absolutely. succumb? You would. Yeah, tortured you victims would. will. And yet these guys were tortured, right, beyond a, a, to the point of death. And their story didn't and change. And yet they never no. changed their story. And so once, once again, that's unprecedented in all of history. I could yeah. not find a motive to make these men go from being cowards to courageous and be willing and wanting to tell some cleverly invented story about some guy that died and rose from the dead and now he's the son of God because they gained nothing. They lost everything in that process. And people, once again, they lie all the time. We got a whole, we, we tell the joke about how do you know if a politician's lying and all his lips are moving, right? We, and we laugh at that because it's true because that's their job. Um, nowadays, it seems like if you don't lie, you're never going to get elected. You, mm -hmm. you have to be a trained, pathetic, narcissistic liar in order to hold office these days because 
they tell so many lies. It's just it's part of their profession, and and they just grow so accustomed to it. And so in the same way, these guys, if they were lying, they were masterful at it, and yet they gave up everything. They didn't gain office. They didn't gain power. They didn't get money. They didn't get influence. Once again, they they lost their wives, their kids, and their own lives. And so there's just many examples like that, that if you do a little deductive reasoning and you're objective and honest as you evaluate what scripture tells us, and even outside of scripture, what history shows us, you have to admit Jesus was not just some prophet. He was not just some religious guy. He was a son of God who performed many miracles and he died on the cross and then he paid for our sin when he rose again. So you would say the linchpin moment for you was when you saw Christ being pinned and recognizing that my sin's a part of that, why he's getting, why he's there suffering right now. Yeah. So, well, for me, it wasn't even a rational, logical thing in emotional. church. It, it was just the Holy Spirit just coming on me. And I know to people who don't know what that means or what that feels like, it seems foreign to them just like it did to me prior to it happening. You. Until you have an encounter with Christ, you are like a Paul. You know, you're an enemy of God, even though you may be thinking you're doing God a favor by hunting certain people down and crucifying them and persecuting them and whatever. You may be thinking you're on God's side. You're you're a zealot for God. You're a religious person. And yet you mock and make fun of those people that call themselves Christians and you call them fools and idiots and, you know, so so much more. So I think in the same way, until you experience it, it's kind of like this. If when my kids were young, if I said, don't touch that, it's hot, right? They may believe it because they trust me, right? And they may obey what I tell them. But if I leave the room, the second they reach out and touch that and it burns their little finger, they no longer believe it's true. They know it's true, right? They've experienced it firsthand. And I think that's what happens when you have an encounter with Christ. You no longer believe it's true. You know, you it's, know true. it's true. You know, I can relate to the, the topic of the child because my mom told me not to touch the eye. First thing I did as soon as she left, I touched the eye, a huge blister on my thumb. Mm-hmm. Just came, and you running. still remember it to this day because you experienced it firsthand. And so in spite of what other people say, whatever people, the advice they give you, whatever, you may ignore it. You may want it. But if you come to that place in your life where you just finally surrender, you yes. fall to the foot of that cross and you say, I'm so sorry. You know, I was wrong. Save me. You know, whatever. God's not into the words. He's into your heart. So whatever it is, when you just humble yourself, you come to that foot of the cross and turn from your sin, you turn to Christ, you're going to experience it. And we're here today talking about the relationship that you can have with Christ if you don't have him in your life. A relationship where you can know the love of a father, the love of someone who can change your life. It's not about coming to him as a perfect man. As you know, whatever you your stature is, your intelligent level, your strength, however strong or weak you think you are, I mean, it's just Christ and Christ alone, and He's the one that's going to change everything in your life. You don't have to worry about the rest. It's about just trusting Him and just asking for forgiveness and opening your life up. Well, I think Jesus even kind of sums it up best by saying, "Anyone that comes after me is going to have to deny himself, take mm-hmm. up their cross, and follow me." And back in that time. The taking up your cross had only one understanding, one meaning, that's death. I mean, you know, it was the cruelest, most horrific way to die. And so I'm sure he chose that phrase on purpose to help people understand it's not about you or self-improvement or trying to be, you know, it's about dying to yourself and saying, I surrender. It's like, God, 
here you go. I'm yours. I give up. I surrender. It's like playing hide and seek. You know, <laughs> yeah. your whole life you might be hiding from God and he's seeking you, right? Well, like and finally you come to that place where you're like, <laughs> okay, I'm going to seek yeah. him. And then when you go to seek him, you find him and God gives you an ollie ollie income freak, you know, kind mm-hmm. of thing. It's like this, you know, come on in. It's okay now. You know, right. you're, you're, you're not it anymore. And so it's, it's just one of those things that you have to experience. You can't explain it any other way. You've, we were talking about this before the interview, you know, you've been in battle and I, even though I've never been in battle, I understand battle. I understand the ups and downs and ins and outs and all the things. I've heard tons of stories from other veterans and, you know, so on. I've experienced through them, their pain and, right. and all those things, but I could never fully understand it or comprehend it because I've never done it. I've never been there. I don't mm-hmm. understand the struggles that they might go through or, the ego that they may suffer from because of it or the power trip they may be on or, you know, whatever it is, I can't because I've never done it. It's just like a man trying to understand what childbirth is. He, you know, women understand that they've had babies that we never have. And you can experience it from a man's perspective, right? but you can't ever fully comprehend what it is to carry a baby to full term and, and then have that baby or whatever. You just, you just, you can't because you've never been there. You've never done that. And, and there's so much, you know, that's how it is with everything in life, right? You, you can't, you can tell people how great ice cream is, but until they taste it, they, you know, they don't understand it. They don't get it, you know? So I would just tell people, come and taste and see that he is good. Yeah. So you had a business up to this point, 2001, you said. And so everyone knew you as Daryl, the non-Christian. What happened afterwards when they saw you as Daryl, the Christian? I, I could go on and on. I could do 10 more interviews on that one <laughs> transition. You know, 2 Corinthians 5.17 sums it up best. It says, any man being Christ, he's a new creation. Mm-hmm. The old will die, the new will come. And that certainly was the case for me. But I will share... What my best friend at that time, my right-hand man, the guy who'd been with me in business more than anybody else, and the guy I was teaching how to take over the company someday when I would retire, um, he said something when we had Ray Comfort, Kirk Cameron, the VP of their ministry, Easy, um, all at dinner, and I invited Matt because he, you know, wanted to meet Kirk Cameron, the celebrity, right. you know, kind of thing. So I invite him, and Easy asked Matt. So do you see any changes in Daryl? Almost the same question you're asking here on this interview. And he said something that at the time I was completely embarrassed by. I could not believe he said that. I almost felt like lecturing him when we got out of the dinner. But then in hindsight, looking back, it was the best thing he could have ever said. It was the greatest testament to the change that had come over me and what Christ was doing in me. And he said, yeah, Daryl has a conscience now. He said before he had no conscience. He mm. could lie. He could do whatever. He could get away with whatever. He could just, you know, justify whatever. It just nothing seemed to phase him. You know, narcissistic maybe. I don't know. But he says now he has a conscience. You know, now he cares about what other people think or mm. say or what he's doing or how he's doing. It. And I've just never seen it before. I've never seen anything like that. And so, like I said, at first I was kind of insulted, embarrassed that he right. said that. But then I realized, no, what he was experiencing without being a, a Christian himself, he was where I was, you know, as an entrepreneur, businessman, you know, that kind of stuff looked up to me and, you know, my success wanted to be me. But now I've just been transformed. I've been made new. And so he couldn't comprehend these changes. It was bewildering to him 
that how could Daryl make you know these changes? Mm-hmm. He's thinking I made the changes. He didn't realize it was God that made those changes in me. And so for him, all he could muster up to understand it was all of a sudden Daryl got a conscience, you know, <laughs> which is true. I mean, well, if any man be right. in Christ, what one one of the hallmarks of true salvation, of true conversion is your conscience turns up about a hundred decibels. Mm-hmm. You know, those things that you used to be able to justify and rationalize and reason away, you can't anymore. In fact, one of the things that held me back in that 90 day search for the evidence was even though I finally intellectually was convinced that Jesus was, was who he said he was, that he was the son of God, risen from the dead, savior of the world, you know, all the things, the, the lamb of God who takes away this in the world, you know, describe them however you want. But the one thing that kind of still held me back is the same thing Jesus said holds most men back. He says, light is coming to the world, but men love darkness. And they won't come into the light for fear their deeds will be exposed. And that was me. I was intellectually, God had already radically changed my heart. Mm-hmm. He put me on this path to search out in truth who he really is and who he really was. But even then, what I was struggling with was I didn't want to come to Christ and fully surrender because I loved my stuff. I loved my sin. You know, I didn't, I didn't want to go to church. I didn't want to read the Bible. I didn't want to fellowship with a bunch of boring, pale-faced Christians, you know. It was like there was those thoughts that would cross my mind. But then, of course, after I finally fully surrendered and he completely started to, to take over my life and change me, I realized, you know what? All those things I used to hate, like going to church and prayer and reading the Bible and fellowship, I started to love. Yeah. And all those things I used to love sex, drugs, rock and roll, whatever, money, power, fame, I started to hate. Not just hate, but loathe. I didn't, I was ashamed and embarrassed myself for that behavior, you know? Mm-hmm. It was like, how could I ever have been that way? How could I ever have been so selfish? How could I ever have been so greedy? You know, and none of that was me. It wasn't just a change of mind or a change of heart. I mean, how many times do you hear people, especially drug addicts, alcoholics, people like that, will say, oh, I have a change of heart. And maybe they do. Maybe they get on the wagon for a week or two or a month. But unless they have an encounter with Christ who, or God himself almighty, who's the only one that has the power to change a heart, they truly, they always revert back. They go back and wallow in the mire. They end back in the pigsty. And, you know, that surely would have been me too had God not got a hold of my heart, radically changed it. But after, you know, time with him, walking with him, every day with him, you know, every day, it's just a little little wiser than I was yesterday, but not as much tomorrow. A little more understanding of who he is and what he expects from me or how I can better honor him or please him. How much more I love him today than I did, you know, 20 years ago when I got saved. So, you know, it, it, it's a process. It's, 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 it's something that God does. He may radically change you on the spot like he right. did me, but that's just the beginning of the journey. That's just the start of it. And, and, and it feels like you're a newborn baby. Yeah. In, fact, I, in fact, I think, let's go ahead and move to your next question, because I think one of the last questions will lead me to this thought. I got you. Uh, so, we have the after of Daryl being challenged by even someone up here, someone who looks up to you, and now it's years later, more silver, more wisdom in the air. How are you walking with Christ today? I would just say a little more today than yesterday, but not as much as tomorrow. Um, I'm going to continue to strive every day just to, to know him and to make him known. And that's really, I think if you sum up a Christian's relationship with God, you could do it in three phrases. And that is know your maker, 
make your maker known and be ready to meet your maker. Um, a lot of, especially people in our generation, look around at the signs of the times. They see the chaos and the craziness that's, that is our world today. You know, whether it's the immorality, whether it's political, whether it's wars or earthquakes or famines or, you know, all those things that Jesus warned us about. So they sense in their spirit that we're getting closer to Christ's return. And so usually when the people hear that phrase, meet your maker, they think that's the day you die, you know. But there's going to be a generation, whether it's us or not, right. I'm not sure. But there is going to be a generation who Christ is going to come back and we'll be alive. And we'll be caught up in a twinkling of an eye to meet them. And you better be ready to meet your maker. Because that day could come at any hour. Any, right now, the way that the world is and with all the prophecies that have been fulfilled, I don't know the hour of the day. But that's why Jesus says you knew not the hour or the day. Mm-hmm. So you better be ready. You better be prepared. And so I would just encourage every Christian to live your life today like he's coming back tonight because someday you're going to be right. And if you're not right and you die, hey, great, big deal. You're going to heaven anyways. But (laughs) you better prepare your kids like he's not coming back for 100 years. You know, you better continue to train them up in the way they ought to go. You better equip them, especially if this world gets any more wicked than it already is. I can't imagine 10, 20, 30 years Mm -hmm. from now how difficult it's going to be for Christian servants at that time. Jesus warned us it'll be difficult times. Paul says in 2 Timothy, difficult times will come for Christian servants. I mean, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, you know, bitter, angry, truce breakers, and so much more. They have a form of godliness, but deny its power. They're forever learning, right. you know, but unable to acknowledge the truth. We have more technology, more knowledge, more information at our fingertips than any other generation before us. Um, which is also a fulfillment of prophecy, great knowledge, you know, increase of knowledge and so much more. So we look around at the signs of the times and I just say, where I'm at today, I'm anxiously, well, no, anxious is probably the wrong word. I'm hopefully and wantingly with a desire to meet my maker, you know. So I know my maker and I want to know him more every day. I make my maker known. I, I'm like, I had, like I said, just start this interview. I'm a nobody. Now, I used to be the successful multimillionaire with famous friends that could go anywhere, do anything, everything. Now, I look at myself as a nobody. I make myself a no reputation. You know, I don't, I'm dead to myself. I don't want to live for me. I want to live for him. Um, but I tell everybody. I don't care if it's repairman or my neighbor or my son-in-law or you know, whoever it is. There's nothing more on this planet I love to talk about than Jesus. You know, that's just the way it is. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. And so... Um, I tell everybody about somebody, Jesus, who can save anybody. And that, if I may, would be the, the way I'd like to end this interview and kind of sum it all up. And that is advice to either other believers or, or a lost person, you know? Yeah. Um, for a believer, I would go back to the beginning of this interview and I would say, well, let me just share a little conversation I had with a guy on an airplane once. He asked me, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm an ambassador. He says, and you're an ambassador to where, for who? Well, I'm part of this international consortium filled with members in every city in every country around the world. And we do some amazing things. I mean, you know, we feed homeless people. We help poor people. We build buildings for people. We uh, teach kids and children and, you know, we uh, help corporations. We counsel kings and leaders and politicians. And he's like, wow, really? And you're an ambassador? What's the name of the place? I was like the church 
You know, it's like the church, what church? I was like, you know, Jesus Christ, you know, the church, people that have been born again and been saved. They're part of this amazing family of brothers and sisters in Jesus that do all these amazing things in his name. And so I think don't sell yourself short. Think of yourself as an ambassador for Christ. You have a great calling and, and whatever that role is within that ambassadorship, you know, it could be doing what you're doing right now, you know, starting a blog for people to share their testimonies. It could be like I do, you know, equipping other Christians to share their faith or get one out and preaching the gospel, passing out tracks, you know, whatever. Could be helping the homeless. It could be, you know, whatever it is. Just find whatever part of the body of Christ you are. And I happen to be a foot. You know, how beautiful are the feet of those that bring good news. So the evangelists are the feet of the body. Um, I, I would just encourage you to find out what part of the body you are mm -hmm. and then go be it with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. Do it. Don't delay because no tomorrow is promised to any of us. Mm -hmm. I mean, just maybe I'm a little emotional today because just yesterday, my daughter witnessed something no human being should ever have to witness in their whole life. She saw a dead person who had just gotten run over by a train. Mm -hmm. And it just goes to show you there's no tomorrow promise to anybody. They were crossing the train tracks. The train came, smashed into the car. They got thrown out. Mm. They're on the scene when 30 seconds after it happened, go over to see if somebody needs help or to call an ambulance or whatever. And she sees the person laying dead in the ditch, all mangled and, and torn apart from the train. And so that's what I would say to lost people. I would just say, look, don't take my word for it. But then again, don't take atheist words for it either investigate the matter you know look at it like pascal's wager you know mm -hmm. you have definitely gonna die 10 out of 10 people die it's the <laughs> oldest statistic are you sure that's book. accurate absolutely <laughs> you are christian you could be biased I mean, about this <laughs> everybody knows the old saying there's only two certain things in life death and taxes right yeah. but i've seen people get out of their taxes all the time right these politicians get out of taxes they never pay any taxes heck People complain about Amazon getting away with making billions of dollars and never paying any taxes. And so, so people get out. That's not a certainty. But I've never seen Jeff Bezos get out of death. I've never seen Bill Gates get out of death. We'll never see Michael Jackson or any of these people who, you know, his plan was to have cryogenics and he was going to be frozen for until they find a you know, cure for whatever disease he might die of. And you know, he died unexpectedly on the way to the hospital in the back of an ambulance. You just, you don't know what tomorrow holds. In fact, commonly when I go to share the gospel with people, and this goes straight to the heart of the matter with lost people, and in fact, I'll leave you with this profound thought. A lot of times when I'm sharing the gospel with them, you can tell they're disinterested. They don't want to hear it. They don't, you know, they're indifferent to it. And I say, I can see you're busy and you don't really want to talk about this right now. So I'll tell you what, it's important because 10 out of 10 die, someday you're going to meet your maker. Why don't we make an appointment to talk about this on the day you die? What day is that going to be? Let me just write it down right now. And they look at you all puzzled and bewildered. You're like, what? that's a weird question. What do you mean? I don't know when I'm going to die. I was like, exactly. You don't know. So don't delay. Don't put it off any further. You don't know when you're going to meet your maker. But I do know this. If you stand before God on the day you die, and he judges you on his standard of goodness, not mine, not yours, not the world's, but his, the Ten Commandments. How many people are going to stand there guiltless? How many people can honestly say they've never told a lie? They've never stolen anything. They've never committed adultery or looked with lust or never taken his name in vain or they always honored their father and mother. I mean, 
Honestly, have you ever told a lie? Oh. Right. Did you ever lie to your parents? Well, of course. Yeah. So yeah. you broke two right there in one. When you lied to your parents, you were breaking the ninth commandment and the fifth commandment because you were dishonoring them by lying to them, right? So none of us, mm-hmm. me included, everybody is guilty before God. And you would be guilty too. That's what makes the difference between Jesus and every other person that ever lived that was ever a religious leader. Not even one, not Muhammad, not Buddha, not Krishna. Mm-hmm. None of them have ever even claimed to have the power to forgive sin, much less prove they had the power to forgive sin by paying the price for their sin when they died and rose again. So there's only one name given under all heaven by which men can be saved, and that's because he's the only one to live the perfect sin-free life. God made him who knew no sin, sin for us, that we may be made the righteousness of Christ. It's a substitution. If you were on death row and then some guy you didn't know suddenly unexpectedly stepped in and said, Judge, if you're willing, I'll take his place. I'll die for him. Now, you'd have a choice. You mm-hmm. could fall to the feet of the guy that just decided to die for you and thank him profusely and say, man, I don't know who you are. I don't know where you came from, but you just saved my life. I could never repay you, but I'll never stop telling people about the sacrifice you made for me. That's the choice that God gives you. And he gives it to all of us, you know? Do you want to receive that free gift of forgiveness, that pardon from certain death and be given given the gift of eternal life in heaven and forgiveness of your sin? Or do you want to reject it? Because you could do that too. And God gives you the choice because love is a choice. God loves us. It's true. He does love us. And he doesn't want to send anybody to hell, but he has to give you the choice. He illustrated his love towards us. He took the first step because there's no greater love than that a man laid down his life for his friends. Every soldier understands that. Every soldier leans on that scripture because they know they got to have someone to have their back. They got to have someone wash their sins mm-hmm. and that there's no greater love, no greater sacrifice than then a fellow soldier lay his life down to save a fellow soldier. Right? And God's going to respect your choice, whether you choose him and to accept him into your life or to respect the rejection from mm-hmm. you. He doesn't want a robot. He wants a relationship. And there's an eternity for both of us, or for the two choices, yeah. right? Eternally separate or eternally with them. The, the truth is we all live forever. Mm-hmm. The question is where? Where yeah. are you going to spend eternity? Yeah. So we're spiritual beings and we're going to live forever. But God gives us a choice because love's a choice. Yeah. Can you make your wife love you? No. No. Right? And how Can I make I get... you love me? Right. No, I can't. I mean, even if I put a gun to your head and I said, Tyler, you tell me you love me or you're going to die. And you're like... I love you. I love you. I love you. you <laughs> Don't know, do it. That would be coercion, right? That would right. be, I'd be coercing you into getting a response or an answer. And God loves you. He's not going to coerce you, right? He's given us all the evidence, all the proof you're ever going to need. All, he resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And so all you really have to do is humble yourself before God. Acknowledge that you're not perfect, that you're a sinner. You've broken those commandments. You know that you are a sinner. You need a savior and take that gift. It's just like right now, if I offer you a million dollars or the deed to my house or my car or whatever, you could receive it or you could reject it. Mm -hmm. If I was that prisoner on death row, I could receive it or I could reject it and say, man, I'm guilty as charged. I deserve the punishment. I did the crime. I'm going to do the time and and go go be put to death. And God's going to dignify your free will. And once again, I'll just leave you with this thought. The day Jesus died, Mm -hmm. two thieves hung on the cross, one on his right, one on the left. And the first they mocked Jesus and made fun of him and said, man, if you're really the son of God, save yourself and save me too, right? But the second thief 
rebuked the first and said, man, don't you even fear God at the time of your death? Notice he's referring to Jesus as God. Mm -hmm. He said, don't you even fear God at the time of your death? Our deeds are justly punished. We're getting what we deserve. Mm -hmm. He's admitting his sin. He's admitting he deserved to be punished. He's humbling himself before God. And then he acknowledged Jesus as Lord and, and Savior over all heaven and earth when he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, keep in mind, Jesus said nothing to the first thief. The first thief's mocking him, making fun of him. I mean, really in the natural, when you think about it, it's like this is his last chance his last dying breath to maybe save one more soul, to reason with one more person, to help them understand who he really is. But he dignified his free will. He let that guy make his own choice because God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And who does he turn to? The humble one, the one that admitted he's a sinner and getting justly punished for his and acknowledged him as Lord and as King of heaven. And he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's it. That was his. That was his salvation experience. He couldn't he do was, anything else. No more works. Yeah. That was it. He 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 was a wasted life, but a saved soul. Yeah. And so, in the same way, you don't have to have a wasted life. You could wait till your dying breath, and if you're fortunate enough to know when that happens, and you're able to take that last breath, I hope and pray it'll be to call on the name of the Lord Jesus. But don't wait that long. Don't waste your life. The biggest regret, there's only one regret I have of, of committing my life to Christ and when I got saved, and that was I didn't do it sooner. Mm -hmm. The only regret was, wow, I could have known this so much sooner if I hadn't been so stubborn, if I hadn't been so stupid, if I hadn't been so proud, if I hadn't been so arrogant, if I hadn't loved money more than I loved God. All those things kind of just kept flooding into my mind, and I felt like I missed so much of all these things that I was experiencing now and I could have had it for so much longer. That was my only regret. And I, so I would just encourage people who are listening to this, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, don't be the foolish thief, right? Don't be the one that mocks and makes fun of him. Not just with your words, but with your rejection of him. Take the time. If you need to, if you're an intellectual person like I was, investigate the matter for yourself. Check it out. Look at the evidence. There's plenty of it to prove that Jesus was who he said he was. But most importantly, just humble yourself. Fall to the foot of that cross and say, God, I, I, I surrender. I give you my heart. I give you my life. I give you everything. In fact, Matt, my right-hand man, the one who said that he noticed that I know how a conscience. Well, of course, I loved him. He's one of my best friends. And I wanted to see him get saved. I wanted him to start to experience these things that I didn't experience. And we go to a baseball game, a Texas Rangers baseball game. We're sitting maybe 10 rows up on the first base side, right? Box seats. And I'm cheering a lot of these things that I've been sharing with you in this interview. And I ask him, you know, what about this? What about that? And he's kind of asking questions, but not really. I can see it kind of resonating with him, but I feel like I'm really getting nowhere. So I take a break. I go grab a soda and a hot dog. And I say a little prayer. I say, God, you know Matt. You know his heart. You know I love him. I want him to know and love you like I do. I want him to trust you. I want him to get saved. I want him to, to experience this thing that you're doing in me, in him, that he can enjoy and have the joy of the Lord as well, you know? And when I said, Lord, just tell me what to say. What do mm -hmm. I need to say? How do I reach Matt for you? And one thing, just one thing came to mind, and it's probably the same thing we ought to leave on with this interview, and that is, if you want to know if God is real, if Jesus is Lord, 
Just cry out with a humble heart and ask him. <laughs> and God makes it clear that he's not afraid to be tested. He says, test me in this, saith the Lord, right? Many times in scripture, just like with Tiny, test me and see if I don't open up the floodgates of heaven so much that you don't have room for it and so on, right? So in the same way, if you want to know if he's real, just ask him. Not like in a defiant, you know, if you're a God, send You'll a do lightning bolt to strike down Donald Trump, you know, whatever. <laughs> God's not going to be mocked. He's Humble not going to be He's not going to... He's not going to obey your command. You're not God. He is. But if you just humble yourself before him. So that's what God told me to tell him. And I tell Matt that. So no, nothing said for like 15, 20, 30 minutes. Between two of us, there's uh, another salesman there, one of the other like regional sales directors. So for 15, 20 minutes with sale, three salesmen in a row, to no words be spoken <laughs> is like a miracle all in itself. But I could tell he's kind of thinking, you know, whatever. And all of a sudden, a foul ball gets hit. And it goes way up into the upper deck. Like I said, we're about 10 rows up on the first mm-hmm. baseline. So he loses interest in it. I'm watching the ball. It hits the railing oh, on the upper gosh. deck. And it starts right back at Matt's head. I mean, it's coming right at us. And it's just floating down like a ball dropped from heaven or something. It's just, it just hit the railing. It's not like some line drive or you know thing like that. It's just floating down. So I stand up. To grab the ball, I'd agreed, I must admit, I'd never caught a foul ball before. So I'm like, <laughs> hey, you know, I'm going to yeah. grab this ball. But even though I was an all-star catcher for 13 years, and I got some big mitts here, you mm-hmm. know, six five, I go to grab the ball, and I cannot close my fingers around the ball. It hits me in the palm of the hand, and it rolls between my index finger and my thumb over his left shoulder and falls into his lap so soft that if it was an egg, it wouldn't have broke. <laughs> and everybody's scrambling around, you know, looking for the ball that I dropped. And all of a sudden, Matt just pulls it out of his lap and he's looking at it. He's like, where did this come from? <laughs> you know, he's just kind of shocked and bewildered. What I didn't know was he took me up on my offer. He took God up on his offer. And he said, God, if you're real, if you're there, I want what I see going on in Daryl. I want what he has. So you just show me, you reveal to me that you're real and I'll follow you. I'll do it. And what God used was a foul ball <laughs> coming off the railing to land in his lap because on the way home, he said, let me borrow your pen. And I gave him my pen. He wrote on that ball the date. He said, this ball came from heaven. <laughs> that's what it took. It got radically saved. It changed his life. It changed his marriage. It changed, you know, just like it did for me. It just, it, God used that one thing to you. change him forever. So... Be encouraged if you're a Christian. Don't buy the lies that the Satan's selling you. Don't be afraid to share your faith. Sow those seeds of truth and love. And you never know what God's going to do. It. You can always count the seeds in an apple, but you can never count all the apples in a single seed. So just keep planting those seeds. You never know what God's going to do with it. could save another Daryl Hundus for all you know. It could be your friends. could be a family member. could be a complete stranger. You never know what God's going to do with those seeds that you sow. You don't know how God's going to do it either. It could be in a foxhole. could be in a, with a baseball. could be in church. How God is going to reach that person. How he's going to reach you. It's going to look different for you. But God loves you. Christ loves you. He wants a relationship with you. He wants a relationship like I have, like Daryl has like so many other Christians have. And we're just voicing that, our testimonies to you all, just to say, come, come and see and enjoy the fruits that God has for you because he loves you and he wants you to be with him for the rest of eternity. Daryl, thank you so much, man. Love you, brother. Love you. It's so awesome hearing your entire story. It's so awesome just selfishly. Now I get to keep this the rest of my life. I get to listen to it. 
So when you're in heaven, or maybe vice versa, will be <laughs> I get to dig all this. <laughs> well, and what's cool about that too is we'll get to see the behind the scenes stuff too. Yeah. You know the way God was orchestrating things and doing things, and that we had no clue that it's a beyond and above our fullest comprehension the power and and the way God works. Uh, you know, in our hearts and minds and lives and the lives of so many others. And when we're in heaven, I'm going to try and get more testimonies. I'm going to try to record them, bring back some Paul, maybe. <laughs> I think we already read his in the word. You can look it up. Anyways, thank you all for listening. Daryl, thank you again for your time, brother. My pleasure. Um, and uh, We're going to be praying for you all. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this testimony. We hope and pray that it was a blessing for you and your day. If you would like to hear more of these testimonies or read through some of Tyler's thoughts or Bible studies, please go to themoretruth.com. If you would like to support the website, please go to the support page on the website or visit givesendgo.com slash the more truth. Thank you again and God bless.